What I am about to show you next may shock and educate you. Welcome to the Jeff Effect. So, what is the Jones Act? Have you ever split a cab or an Uber? The last time I was in New York, I did just that. You know, I was there for an e-commerce event, and when the day was over, you know, I called an Uber to take me back to the uh, B&B I was renting. You know, another guy at the event, another guy who was there, you know, marketing at the event, asked, you know, where I was going, and it turns out that we were going to the same neighborhood, just around the corner from each other, and, you know, so he asked if we could split the Uber. Piece of cake, right? You pull up the Uber app, and we added a second trip, a second stop on the Uber Ride app. And you can do it right there and on the phone. It makes it easy. And what did I care? I cut my costs in half. It was very efficient. It was great. Anyway, the Uber driver pulls up in a blue Toyota Corolla. You know, we load up all of our event swag and the brochures that we have there, and we, we get in the car. The driver stops in front of the other guy's place first because it was closer. Now, the guy gets out of the car, hands me 10 bucks for his share of the ride. And the driver goes to my stop, and then I pay the driver in full, along with a nice little tip, and everybody's happy. The other guy, he saved money. I saved money. The Uber driver made a few extra bucks, and he's happy too. And since we didn't have to take two cars, we, heck, we burned less gas. It was very efficient. In fact, the whole world should be happy, right? thing. If this little trip was under the Jones Act, it would have been illegal. If that sounds a little crazy, that's because it is. You know, economists speak in a foreign language sometimes. You know, it's a shame because it makes economics conversations hard to have and they're almost impenetrable at times. But let me drop just a couple of terms on you. The first one is the word cabotage. Cabotage. That's a weird word. It, it, cabotage, it sounds like the word cabbage, right? And in fact, you know, cabbage can be cabotage. C- cabotage are shipments of goods between two ports within the same country. It's domestic trade. So if you ship a load of wood, let's say, from Seattle, Washington to San Francisco, or if you want to send a bunch of Georgia peaches from Savannah to Newark, New Jersey, or if you want to ship a container of cabbage from Port Washington, Wisconsin to Chicago so they can make sauerkraut for those famous brats, that's all cabotage. The next economics terms we kind of need to know are, is the word margin or marginal. In normal, everyday conversations, when you say something is marginal, it means that it's small and not very important. But in economics, everything important takes place at the margins. It means that small increases in costs have major impacts on entire economies over time, especially when those small costs are spread out so they're hard to see. when, When costs are spread out and hard to see, they're called diffuse costs. And sometimes those little inefficiencies are really hard to get rid of when all the extra cash goes into just a few pockets. When a lot of cash is slipping into such a few pockets, those are called concentrated benefits. Oh, my moolah, it's escaping my clutches. So we got the linguistic side of it out of the way. We're talking about the Jones Act, so let's get to it. This law is actually called the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. It was championed by a guy named Wesley Jones, who was the senior senator from the state of Washington at the time. And it turns out that it's kind of important to know that. Now... It's easy to do the math. This is a hundred-year-old law, but it's still impacting us to this day. And like all laws made by political committees across the history of all time, this one is filled with twists and turns and devilish details. But in a nutshell, the Jones Act does these things. It requires that for all shipping, you know, actual shipping in ships, that the ships that are used for cabotage in the United States must be built in the U.S. They must be owned by U.S. companies. They must be flagged in the U.S. They must be commanded by U.S. citizens' officers. 
And the staff, the guys who run the ship and load the things, they must be U.S. citizens too. Now, that sounds not so bad in the face of it, but the, you know, there's, there's little efficiencies that are built into every single one of those. But the one that's probably most confusing is when we say the ship must be flagged as a U.S. ship, you know, U.S. built, U.S. owned, U.S. flagged. That might be hard to understand. So let me tell you in this way. It's, it's like if you live in the state of Nebraska, you license and register your car in the state of Nebraska, and you pay your property taxes to the state of Nebraska, or your driving license fees and stuff are paid to the state of Nebraska. That's sort of like what it means to flag your ship there. I mean, you can, you can be a U.S. company dry, uh, you know, owning a ship that was, say, made in South Korea, and you can flag it in Panama. And what that means is that your ship is registered in the country of Panama and licensed in the country of Panama. You pay some small fees to Panama, and you have to abide by Panamanian shipping rules. If you flag your ship in the United States, you have to abide by open sea-going rules and restrictions of the United States. So that, that's what that means, and we'll cover more of that in a bit. Now, there's, we got to be fair about the Jones Act, because there's some other things in there too, right? There's some provisions about how ships need to be insured, and you know, the, the you know, seamen, the merchant marines who run the ship, they have certain rights and the ability to take and, and have good working conditions. That's all good stuff. And there's some things in there about port inspections and a few other stuff. So there's, there's other stuff cr- crammed in there, but the real sticky points are, the, are, are where those ships are built. One more thing you need to know. Th- this particular law, what we call the Jones Act, is often confused with the Passenger Services Act of 1886. Heck, everybody confuses these two laws, and that one's even older. But the difference is this. The Jones Act covers, you know, goods that are shipped, you know, covers cabotage. The Passenger Service Act of 1886 covers people, you know, things like ferries and, uh, and, and you know, ocean-going, you know, cruise ships, you know, and p- personnel transports, things like that. So they cover different things. We're not going to talk about that side of it right now, and everybody gets them confused. Heck, even NPR Radio has done a couple podcasts where they confuse these two laws. We're just going to set that aside because we're talking about cabotage, and it's important. And you're kind of right to ask me, hey, Jeff, why is it important? Here is the why. It's important because the Jones Act makes everything you buy a little bit more expensive on average. Not a lot. Just a little, somewhere between 1% and 3%, depending on what product we're talking about and whose numbers you trust more. And all that extra money from that little 1% to 3% inefficiency is flowing into the pockets of just a few special interests. This is the very definition of diffuse costs and concentrated benefits. Everybody in America suffers a little tiny bit of pain that they don't even notice and a few people get a lot more money and a lot of power. The second reason why this is important is because it's driving American business overseas, even though that is the exact opposite of what this law was intended to do. See, this is where the word margin and marginal comes in. If you increase your marginal costs a little bit, over time, people respond to that, and they shift their behavior. They change how they ship. They change where they locate factories. And that impacts the economy over the long term. And the third reason why this is super important is, heck, it's keeping Puerto Rico poor. Say what? It's keeping Puerto Rico poor. You know, if, if Puerto Rico were a state, it would be the poorest state by far. And the Jones Act forces even higher prices on the people of Puerto Rico, and it makes it more expensive for businesses to build factories and do business here. You know, my wife and I, we moved to Puerto Rico this this last year, and we live in Puerto Rico now full-time. It's our home. So this is not only personal. I can look around and see it all around me every single day. And the more I learned about the Jones Act, the more it made my head explode. I had a conversation with Colin Grabo of the Cato Institute to get to the bottom of it. So, Colin Grabo, 
is part of the Cato Institute. He's a policy analyst at the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. That sounds very impressive. He has a BA in International Affairs from the James Madison University, and anything with the words James Madison in it, I like. And he has a master's in international trade and investment policy from George Washington University. It's like, the you, was, it, was it a requirement that you had to attend all the universities which had founding father, fathers in their name? Was that the deal? Surprisingly, it just worked out that way. No, it wasn't part of a conscious plan. All right, we got to go out. We got to get your PhD from like Ben Franklin something. We got <laughs> to do that too. And there will then, be no PhD. I can guarantee you that. One of my coworkers yeah. got a PhD. Way too much work. You know, I, I took. I'm, fin- I'm wrapping up a master's in economics at UNO right now, U- uh, University of Nebraska at Omaha, and I'm in the middle of my thesis. And everyone says you should get your PhD. I'm going no. No, no, not going to happen. All right. And uh, Colin, you specialize in things like subsidizing sugar production in the Jones Act. So first of all, welcome to the Jeff Effect. Nice to have you here. Well, thanks for having me on the program. It's my pleasure. Hey, so, so, you know, the Jones Act. Okay, so we we know this. This was foisted upon America about 100 years ago, almost exactly 100 years ago. And it was trying to do something. So the, the, the first question that and nobody seems to ask, you know, whenever it comes to anything related to economics or human behavior or government is, what are you trying to do and did you do it? Okay, so the first thing is, let's kind of review the Jones Act. What was it trying to do? It was trying to do something, right? Ostensibly, what was, what was it trying to accomplish? Well, strictly speaking, what the, what the Jones Act attempted to do, and when I use the term Jones Act, I'm referring to Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. So what the Jones Act attempted to do, and what I think it succeeded in doing, what I know it succeeded in doing, was to cut foreign shipping interests out of the Alaska trade. So let me give a little bit of background. Um, cabotage restrictions have been in place in the United States basically since the late 1700s, since the very, the very beginning of this country. Um, and in fact, Jones Act defenders will seize upon that to say, hey, this is nothing new. The founding fathers believed in this. This is uh, you know, a very uh, American uh, piece of legislation. It has a proud tradition. What they don't mention is that it was passed, these, these cabotage restrictions were passed in a very different context. Back at this time in the 1700s, uh, U.S. shipping and shipbuilding were renowned for their, for their competitiveness. Uh, U.S. shipbuilding was estimated to be something like 20 to 50 percent cheaper than what you find over in Europe. That's not a big surprise. The United States uh, had access to large amounts of timber, uh, and you know all the 13 colonies uh, or 13 original states had had a coastline. So people were very familiar with with uh, the, the ocean and and harnessing uh, maritime transportation. So we had um, you know very experienced. Uh, sh- uh, uh, crew members and and ship captains and shipbuilders, all the things necessary to have a competitive shipbuilding industry, and and the U.S. stayed fairly competitive in shipbuilding and shipping until about the mid 1800s, at which time the age of uh, wood and sail gave way to iron and steam, and at that point the U.S. started to fall behind. Uh, I think this is because uh, you have these. Uh, domestic build requirements, for example, there was no incentive to keep up and innovate when you had this captive market at home. Um, so as time went on, uh, the, the, these restrictions started to become more and more onerous as the U.S. became less and less competitive, and people started to look for ways around it. And one thing that happened is in Alaska, uh, to avoid these cabotage restrictions, what people were doing were sending um, goods overland from the United States to uh, Canada, to Vancouver, the Vancouver region, and they would get on a foreign ship and go up to Alaska. Now, a shipping interest based out of Seattle hated this because they wanted the Alaska market all to themselves. Unfortunately, they had a senator by the name of, of Wesley Jones. And uh, Senator Jones had a series of hearings about the maritime industry in 1919 and 1920. And in 1920, uh, early 1920, there were some shipping interests that testified before his committee and said, you got to do something about these foreigners that are uh, taking the Alaska trade from us. So what they, the Jones Act did is it took the existing cabotage laws and tightened them and made them even more restrictive than they already were. Uh, so, for example, uh, it used to say that uh, the transportation of goods was restricted um, to U.S. ships if it occurred between U.S. two U.S. ports. Well, 
ports was changed to points, for example, which is more all-encompassing, for example. And uh, the ability to send something to a foreign port and then have it go on a foreign ship to an American port was totally restricted. So strictly speaking, that is what the Jones Act was intended to do and what it did do, because today you cannot use foreign ships to send anything to Alaska through Canada or otherwise. But to get back to your point, um, I think if you were to ask uh, most Jones Act supporters today why this law is necessary, what it's supposed to do, why we have it, they would say, they wouldn't say anything about Alaska. They would say, well, we need uh, this law to preserve and assure the United States of access to shipbuilding uh, through that U.S. build requirement. And we need ships, uh, which is accomplished by restricting cabotage to U.S. ships. And we need U.S. mariners to crew those ships, which is supposedly accomplished through the U.S. Uh, crew requirement found in the Jones Act. So the point being, you know, according, if you were to ask a Jones Act supporter, they would say this law is necessary to assure the United States of shipbuilding, ships and mariners, all of which can be harnessed and used in, in times of war to transport uh, goods and material for the military to where it's needed and also to build ships to replace or repair our uh, ships that are you know, damaged in time of war to build new ones. Okay, so so ship protect, you have shipbuilding industries in the United States to maintain a domestic fleet and uh, to maintain an experienced body of people who know how to run ships and sail them across the ocean and that this is in our national security and long-term best interest to have these things. That was what it intended to do, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so now we've had it for a hundred years, right? And we should be able to take and look back at this and say, okay, that's what the intent is. Did it succeed? So let's take the first one, right? Did, uh, you know, fostering the building of U.S. built ships, has it succeeded in that? I would submit that the answer is no. Uh, if you look at numbers of large uh, U.S.-built uh, US ocean-going ships, so ships uh, at least 1,000 gross tons or larger, in an average year, the United States builds two or three of these. Uh, to give some perspective, a, a shipyard, a single shipyard in South Korea might build anywhere from 50 to 75 ships in a year. That's one shipyard, whereas collectively all U.S. shipyards might build two or three. In fact, uh, I think this year they're supposed to build two. Next year, uh, there's one scheduled for delivery. The year after that, zero. Uh, so U.S. shipbuilding is in a bad place. Well, so we, we still build all of our our navy ships, right? You know, we yes, those things. We're not talking about no. We're not talking about the navy. No. Right? So that, you know, that's another point. Uh, people that would you know say we need the Jones Act to preserve shipbuilding in this country. Well, we already have kind of an insurance policy there, and that all uh, ships for the U.S. Navy for the U.S. military have to be U.S. built, and that is separate from the Jones Act. That has nothing to do with the Jones Act. That's under a different provision of U.S. law, and no one is talking about changing that. So you get rid of the Jones Act, uh, you know, I think ultimately it'd be good for U.S. shipbuilding, but even if you don't subscribe to that, uh, you know, 70% of shipbuilding revenue in this country comes from the government. It's not the commercial right. side. The government is what's really driving shipbuilding in this country to the extent we, we have shipbuilding. Okay, so, so everybody, we can just set this aside. We're not talking about our ability to build aircraft carriers, destroyers, and cruisers. We're not talking about that. That's a totally separate deal. It's protected yes. in a different way. And I, I don't know if, go ahead. I would just add that furthermore, uh, the shipyards that build aircraft carriers and destroyers and these combatant ships for the US Navy are different shipyards than the ones that build Jones Act ships. So it's not the case that say a shipyard will build an aircraft carrier and they'll turn around and build a container ship you know, for the Jones Act trade or something like that. These are different shipyards that, do, that build different types of ships. They're very distinct. The only overlap you will find is that there are some shipyards that will say build uh, a, a, a tanker or a container ship for the Jones Act trade, and they'll also build, say, an oiler for the U.S. Navy or a non-combatant uh, type ship. You do find some of that, uh, but but it, it, these are fairly distinct uh, industries, right? See, because I, I can see where that you know, to the average guy just hearing this thinks, well, of course I want my Navy ships built in the United States. I mean, I don't think there's any, dis none of us, nobody reasonable person probably disputes that fact, you know, right? You need to have that square. Okay, so so uh, I read a couple of statistics, and I want you to tell me if you think they're true. I mean, I've been studying, cram it's like cramming for a final exam here for me. And, and, I've, and for example, um, uh, cargo ships, heavy lift cargo ships 
Um, I read that the entire U- that the U.S. only accounts for between four and six percent of those. Is that an accurate number? Well, in terms of you know, if you want to talk about container ships, I mean, if you just take large commercial ships, just in general, uh, I think the U.S. is less than one percent of, of the wow. entire less market. than one percent. I mean, so, to give you some perspective, there are you know, depending on how you um, qualify what constitutes a ship. Uh, you know, I think there's in the neighborhood of, you know, 40 to 50,000 ships out there. Uh, the Jones Act fleet is 98 ships. Okay. Yeah. Of those 56 are tanker ships and the rest are a mix of uh, container ships, general cargo ships, and some uh, roll on roll off ships. Uh, for example, uh, there in the Puerto Rico trade, uh, there are, I think two ships um, that, that uh, will, pick up cars off the U.S. mainland and transport them to, to Puerto Rico along with containers. That, so that's, how we got, that's how we got our furniture in my Jeep here, by the way. Yeah. 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 And it co- cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, it, it's, so there's a good argument here that, it, that the Jones Act has had no measurable impact positively on the building of ships. How about as far as de- maintaining a domestic fleet? Uh, is, that, is that been affected? Has it helped that? Well, if you um, look over over recent decades, if you go back to, the, I think, the 1950s, there was something in the neighborhood of, I want to say, 450 Jones Act ships, 430 Jones Act ships, something in that neighborhood. And today, you know, we're down to 98. It's been on a pretty steady uh, downward trajectory. Uh, if, also, if you can, you can measure it in terms of tonnage, because, uh, you know, one offsetting factor here is, is ships have gotten larger. So, you know, one ship today could do the work of three ships before, but even if you measure in terms of tonnage and and and, and add that up, we, you know, tonnage peaked. I think the 1970s has been on decline since 1980. So no matter whether you measure it in terms of you know raw numbers of ships or the ship tonnage, uh, both have been on decline for decades, which is not a huge surprise given that U.S. built ships cost four to five times more than those uh, built in other countries. And, and something and, more expensive, you get less of it. I, absolutely. So, uh, but, you know, I also read, you know, in my research that in our last several military conflicts where we've needed to ship cargo, you know, uh, you know, foodstuffs and equipment and stuff overseas, that that stuff's gone on foreign flagged and foreign built ships anyway. Is that true? So, uh, you know, the example I like to use for this is Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, for your listeners who may be too young to remember or need a refresher, you know, this is back in, I believe, 1990. Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded Kuwait. The United States wanted to uh, get men and equipment and supplies to Saudi Arabia as quickly as possible to head off a possible invasion of Saudi Arabia. Uh, so this is kind of the situation that the Jones Act supposedly was made for. Uh, the Jones Act, as we discussed previously, is meant to assure that there would be ships and mariners to crew those ships available. And yet when we had Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we needed to get all the supplies and equipment over to Saudi Arabia. The Jones Act fleet came up short. Uh, there was a total of one Jones Act ship that was used to transport supplies. I dare you to say that again. Uh, there was a total of one Jones Act ship that was used to transport supplies from the United States to Saudi Arabia. And in terms of mariners, we had big problems there as well. Uh, they had, there weren't enough mariners. They had to do things like uh, use veterans of, of previous wars. They had to use guys, you know, veterans of the Vietnam War, the Korean War, World War II. Um, there were, I think, several sailors in their 80s. The oldest was 92 years old. They had to get these guys, pull them out of retirement to crew these ships. There weren't enough. Uh, they also caught a break when the Great Lakes fleet froze. The Great Lakes froze over in January, so they could use sailors off some of those uh, vessels to crew U.S. ships to transport supplies. So, in fact, they had to uh, turn abroad and, and use a lot of foreign flag ships to get, get the job done. Uh, they went to all kinds of countries to ask them to use their ships. We even asked the Soviet Union uh, twice to borrow one of their ships to transport supplies to Saudi Arabia. So we were short of, of, of men and uh, crewmen and, and also of ships uh, for these sea lift operations. And if you fast forward to the Iraq War, um, I'm aware of one Jones Act ship that transported supplies that was used in in, in, in the Iraq War and Operation Iraqi Freedom. I think there may have been a few others. But generally speaking, Jones Act ships are not used in time of war. And that's not a huge surprise because, after all, these ships are busy, you know, for example, taking your 
car to Puerto Rico. And if those ships are off transporting goods for the military, who's going to transport goods from the United States to Puerto Rico or to Hawaii or Alaska or, you know, ship uh, crude oil or refined products within the, the, the 48 contiguous states? So th- these ships are desperately needed. Okay, so so just you know, right there on the face of it, here we have uh, we have a, a a very old law, one that's a hundred years old, that that has that's that included includes dozens of regulations that impact virtually every aspect of domestic uh, trade, and it had three major reasons for being, and now we're a hundred years later and we're looking at this and we say. It didn't accomplish any one of those three reasons. Now, as a, as a bit, if you're a business guy and you see that, you've got to change it because it's it's you're not accomplishing any of the stated objectives, you know, and you're just costing yourself money. You would change that immediately, but we're not changing. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about a little bit later about why we're not changing those things. But I want to tell you a story about how the Jones Act got on my radar. Okay, and you know. Some of my listeners already know, uh, nine months ago, approximately, we moved you know, from Omaha, Nebraska to Puerto Rico. And you know, the reason is this, is because I make my living online. I'm part of this whole connected thing. Long before COVID forced everyone to be, I've been, I've been making my living remotely. And you know, we had a choice of living in the, uh, the Midwest or living by a tropical beach. And we thought about that decision for about three or four seconds and then uh, set about a plan to make it happen. So we moved here. And, and so I'm here and I've got my economics background and I, was, I, I drive my family crazy. I research everything too much. I wanna know the stats. I wanna know the reasons. When we picked a neighborhood, I wanted to know the demographics. I wanted to know the average income of the, of the area. I wanted to know the crime statistics of the area. I mean, I, it's an illness. I need some sort of medication. But that said, something that jumped out at me is I was moving from a, to a place in the United States where for this whole geographic region, about 4 million people on this island, the average wage was about $27,000 a year. And that was that was shocking to me because that's that's fairly low. That's on the low side, right? The the median income in the United States is actually twice that, you know. And and so this is this is half the median income. And and I was thinking about well, why is that the case? And I, then then all of a sudden we had the crack up in China and we had you know the trade wars and stuff like that. I think hey, this is the perfect opportunity for Puerto Rico because what we should be doing we should be sending a delegation from Puerto Rico to Seattle. And to Cupertino, California, and we should be saying, "Hey, you know what? Apple Computer, you know, you're shipping parts to China, and assembling things in China and shipping them back, right? And and you're doing that for a reason. And and hey, Nike, you're having you're having all the raw materials for your your sneakers being shipped to China, made into sneakers, and then shipped back. Why don't we do that here?" Why don't you? Why don't you build a supplemental factory for Apple and a supplemental factory for Nike shoes and put it in Puerto Rico and put you know uh, you, the average wage is twenty seven thousand dollars a year. This is not a high wage. We're a lot closer. Your shipping costs should go down, and it's an educated workforce, and it gives you you know a, a good balance of U.S. manufacturing versus overseas manufacturing. This seems like something you should consider if you're a businessman. Let's put some incentives in place. And then I looked at it. I said, they can't because even though China is seven thousand miles away, it is cheaper to ship stuff to China and ship it back than it is where I'm at, and I'm a 1,000 miles away from Florida. So, and I thought, well, why is the shipping cost five times more expensive to go 1,000 miles than it is to go 7,000 miles? Why would that be? And I bumped forehead first into the Jones Act. That's how I, that's how it got on my radar, and then you and I met on Twitter. And, and so it, it just doesn't make sense, right? It's something, you know, it, it, we, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the economics about, you know, how much it costs. And what we really have to understand is that cost, economists measure costs in funny ways, but you can't measure costs that you never had the opportunity to spend. And so you have, if you have tons, literally hundreds of businessmen making decisions they're factoring things like the Jones Act into their calculations, putting them on these massive spreadsheets, 
calculating out the risks of doing business this way. And then they just decide not to make things where you want them to make things because of all these influences and will never be able to truly calculate the full impact of, of laws like the Jones Act because these decisions were made in the presence of the Jones Act. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right. So I think, you know, what we're getting at here is, you know, the, the concept of opportunity cost. And I think that's hugely important when it comes to discussing the Jones Act. I think a lot of people think that the cost of the Jones Act is, well, if I could uh, ship something on a foreign flagship for the United States, for example, to Puerto Rico, and it costs X, and the, the Jones Act cost is Y, the difference between those two, well, that's the cost of the Jones Act. No, no, no. That's the first order effect of the Jones Act. It has all these knock-on effects. For example, you talked about manufacturing in Puerto Rico, which, yeah, by the way, you mentioned the, the, the income level. I mean, we, according to government statistics, it has a 43% poverty rate. If it was a U.S. state, it would be by far the poorest U.S. state. And we saddle them with some of the world's highest maritime transportation costs for an island, a very poor island. Um, but you know, one reason manufacturers are reluctant to set up shop in Puerto Rico is because manufacturing uses a lot of electricity. And Puerto Rico has some of the country's highest electricity rates. And there are many reasons for that. But one reason, you know, one thing I like to bring up is the fact that Puerto Rico, um, you know, the United States is one of the world's largest exporters of liquefied natural gas. And Puerto Rico buys none of it. Uh, and the reason is directly because of the Jones Act. We ship it to Japan. You know, we ship it to all over the place. And we don't ship it to um to, to a part of the United States because we can't, because there are no ships to transport it. There are zero Jones Act compliant LNG containers. So when Puerto Rico goes shopping for LNG, the United States is off the market. That's crazy. That not only uh, means that potentially they have to pay more for, uh, by buying it from other countries, but they have, they have less bargaining power. You know, right now they buy the overwhelming majority from Trinidad and Tobago. They can't say to Trinidad and Tobago, you better give us the best price or else we'll go to the Americans because they know we, they can't go to the Americans. There are no ships to transport it. And a lot of people, you know, if I push back or they think to themselves, well, that's an easy problem to solve, just build the ship and then crew it with Americans and, and there you have your ship. That's never going to happen. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, to build an LNG carrier in Asia costs about $180 million. In the United States, $700 million. So we're talking half a billion dollars more for one ship, for one ship. I mean, the, the math does not pencil out that won't happen. So that's just, you know, that's one effect right there. That's an opportunity cost. They can't buy U.S. LNG. They can't get cheaper prices for the natural gas they need to power the grid. Um, also, uh, you know, you're maybe familiar with the port of Ponce, which was built and sits empty and unused. And the vision for it was to be a transshipment port. Uh, basically, you'd have big ships coming over from Asia, and there would be a hub and spoke system. They'd get uh, transported to maybe smaller ships that would then get dispersed throughout the Caribbean. And some of these ships would probably go to the United States. But any ship going, carrying goods from Puerto Rico to the United States will be subject to the Jones Act. That totally wrecks the business case for doing transshipment in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is ideally situated for this, and yet it really doesn't occur. So Puerto Rico is harmed in many more ways than just the obvious ways of paying more for the stuff that comes from the U.S. mainland. I think we all need to appreciate that. You know, I 100% agree. And I, I want to linger on that point for a little bit. You know, you said that there's not a single LNG tanker that qualifies in the Jones Act. But it's more than that. There's not an oil tanker that I'm aware of. Um, what what, what uh, Heavy project ships heavy cargo ship, or, you know, I can even say even a cruise ship, none of those are built, have been built, none of them that are on the sea today have been built in the United States. So, there, so, so all of these categories are excluded. So basically, there, there are uh, crude, um, crude oil carriers in the Jones Act fleet that have been built in the U.S. Um, but I mean, they're really, the, the U.S. fleet is container ships, um, there's a few hybrid container roll-on roll-off ships. They call Conros, uh, and there are general cargo ships and oil tank and, and tanker ships, and that's it. But within tanker ships, there are um, there are only there are crude oil carriers and there's refined product sh uh, ships. There are no LNG carriers. There are no liquefied petroleum gas uh, carriers, which is basically propane, butane. Uh, the United States is the world's leading exporter of propane. And yet Hawaii imports it from as far away as West Africa because there is no ships to carry it. There are no heavy lift ships. As you said, there, I mean, the, 
as far as cruise ships, we haven't built a large cruise ship in this country since 1958. There are no U.S. built cruise ships. Now, that's under a related law called the Passenger Vessel Services Act, but, but you're totally right. There are entire classes and types of ships that just don't exist in the Jones Act fleet, and if American needs to use that type of ship, they are completely out of luck. You know, and, and that creates an interesting distortion. And let's talk about a few of the, you know, we all like to say, hey, you know, um, you know, anecdotes are not evidence, right? But we, you know, let's just kind of make this real in a couple of ways. And, and I'll go first. You know, we talked about LNG, liquefied natural gas, and that there's there's no LNG tankers that, that are that qualified. So it creates a unique thing. We in the United States do produce more liquefied natural gas than any other country, right? Any Free in the world, we're one. Or we might be the top producer. I think we're like the number three export. Yeah, but you're totally right. We have okay. oodles of it. We're 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 uh, you know Saudi Arabia of natural gas almost. Right. So so, but you can take and um, at a at a at a U.S. port. My, uh, my recent reading, and you know these these prices fluctuate from day to day. But at my recent reading, I read a report that said that you can buy for for three dollars per thousand cubic feet. Three dollars per thousand cubic feet. You can buy at the at the port of Maryland. There's a pipeline that ends at the Maryland docks, and you can buy LNG gas at three dollars per thousand cubic feet. But the people of Massachusetts pay nine dollars, and the reason they pay nine dollars is because there's no way, there's no sufficient pipeline to carry enough liquefied natural gas to Massachusetts, so it has to be brought in by ship. And so what happened to you, since there's no liquefied natural gas carriers, you cannot put it on a ship in Maryland and just sail it about 500 miles up the coast and go to Massachusetts. So what happens is this. I call, I'm, the term I came up in my brain is that the triangle trade of liquefied natural gas. When they run out of natural gas in Massachusetts, it has to come, and it usually comes from Russia. So it comes out of the Baltic Sea on a Russian ship, drops off. That liquefied natural gas in Massachusetts at nine dollars per thousand cubic feet, then it sails to Matt, to uh, Maryland, and but refills itself at three dollars per thousand cubic feet, and then it sails to Pakistan and drops it off at at a, at a profitability. So where pay, Massachusetts pays nine dollars, and then so the ship doesn't have to sail back and forth across the ocean empty. It refills itself at three dollars, getting basically a six dollar per thousand cubic foot spread for doing nothing. Is that, does that sound accurate in any respect? I, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's plausible. Um, I haven't, you know, to, to really verify that you need to follow the, the, the track of a single ship and, uh, you know, I haven't been able to do that. But what we do know is that, uh, like you said, New England is pipeline constrained. And when they need, when the demand for natural gas spikes during the winter and they need more of it, they have to go to the spot market to buy it. Uh, most of it comes from Trinidad and Tobago, but there have been examples of them importing from Europe. And if you're talking Europe, you're basically talking Russia, uh, Russian gas that comes over uh, to to the United States. While, as you said, you know, 500 miles further south at Cove Point, Maryland, there is an LNG export facility. But again, they can't. There are no ships qualified under the Jones Act to transport it, so they have to you know, import it all the way from across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, in some instances. Uh, because of the Jones Act. And meanwhile, those ships, after they discharge their cargo, they absolutely can go to another U.S. port, pick up another load of LNG, and carry it to you know, the four corners of the earth. Um, and they, those those foreign um, buyers can buy U.S. LNG at, at a cheaper price than, than some Americans can. Um, it's interesting. There's an organization that every year puts out an annual report about LNG and who bought it, where it's being exported from. If you look just at North America, I believe literally every country in Central America and the Caribbean that imports LNG bought at least some of it last year from the United States. The only part of the Caribbean that did not was Puerto Rico, the one part that is part of the United States. And they can't buy LNG despite being part of the United States, but because they're part of the United States. And that is absolutely crazy. Okay, so all right, so we have, we have a couple of these. So tell me about what I, the flying cows of Hawaii. Tell me about flying cows. <laughs> Cows yeah. can't fly. Tell this, me about. Is, tell me why we have flying. You would cows think not, but under the Jones Act, they can. Uh, so, in a normal, in a normal country, in a Jones Act free country, uh, what would happen, or environment, what would happen is most people. Let me back up. What most people probably don't know is that Hawaii is actually home to a substantial cattle industry. I think some of the top twenty-five herds in the country are found on the Big Island of Hawaii. Um, 
And what they do is they raise these cattle to a certain age and then they export them to the West Coast for processing. Um, and to get them there, uh, ideally what would happen is they would put them on a ship built for that purpose called a livestock carrier. But again, this is a recurring theme. There are no livestock carriers in the Jones Act fleet. So they have two options to get these uh, cattle to the West Coast. Uh, one is they have to put them on a barge from the Big Island to Honolulu, and they sit at a lot in Honolulu, and then they get loaded on what's called a cowtainer. These are converted uh, shipping containers where they put a trough in there and uh, you know have some ventilation for for the cattle, and they put them on container ships and are sent to the West Coast. Uh, and the other method that they uh, use is they actually put the cattle on 747s and fly them to the West Coast. Um, this is this is because the shipping Teamsters Union is now coming to get you. I hear the sirens coming at you in the background. Always, always, always on the lookout for unmarked cars. So. What happens is Hawaii imports a lot. They don't export very much. So you have these fully loaded 747s that will come into to Hawaii, and then they would fly back empty. So the cattle rancher said, well, the shipping costs are so high that why don't we just use these to send some of our cattle uh, to the West Coast? And that is, in fact, what happens. So, you know, now I will say the majority of them still go on these cowtainers uh, on, on container ships, but the um, the, the ranchers there, they, they hate this and they perennially lobby uh, for an exemption to the Jones Act so they can use actual ships meant for that purpose, which would reduce their costs uh, massively and also be better for, for the cattle. Uh, you look around the world, no other country uses these cowtainers. These are a ridiculous uh, contraption and direct result of the Jones Act. Uh, it's, a, it's a clutch, basically. So and, and so it has come to be that in Hawaii, you have cows that are put on airplanes uh, to go to the West Coast because our shipping costs are so outrageously expensive that it actually makes financial sense. Well, it looks like Bessie's getting some frequent flyer miles. So, so let me, I have another one that I read about, and, and this has been, I read this in both a, uh, an article on the Jones Act and I, I heard it repeated on a, on a podcast, is that uh, there was a, yeah, a couple of years ago, there was a really severe winter in the north in the uh, northeast, and uh, New Jersey ran completely out of out of rock salt. So you know they just they needed to defer, you know they needed to make the freeways and the roads safe. So they but they ran out of salt, and there was a bunch of salt up in the state of Maine, and there was a ship that could carry all that salt in the state of Maine, but it was a foreign flag ship. So what they had to do is they had to take and make some odd number twelve or thirteen trips with a where a small barge full of salt was being towed by a tugboat from Maine to New, to New Jersey and back again, greatly multiplying the cost, and that it would have been it would have been far more cost effective just to take and put it all on that ship, send it down. The ship was heading to Newark anyway. It was on its way down to the neighborhood, but it was illegal to put the salt on the ship that was on its way there. But right there that you described, you know, what it also speaks to is that on the East Coast of the United States, if you want to send something, for example, from Boston to uh, Savannah or Jacksonville um, or Miami, there are no Jones Act container ships that operate along the East Coast. The only Jones Act ships you find along the East Coast are those going from basically from Jacksonville to Puerto Rico. But they're along the Eastern Seaboard, so that it's just not even an option. The ships don't exist. The only... The only I mentioned that the, the Jones Act ship, there's 98 Jones Act ships, 56 are tankers, and the rest are a mix of container ships and, and other uh, cargo ships. And those ships operate exclusively going to Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Alaska. They basically, in other words, they go where trucks and rail are not an option. Jones Act container ships are so expensive that they are only used when there's literally no other options. So along the East Coast, where you have rail, where you have trucks, uh, there are no Jones Act container ships because they're absolutely uh, cost prohibitive and don't make economic sense. So you have these situations um, where, like you said, you want to transport salt, there's a foreign flagship. And here's the other crazy thing. If you look at uh, their, their websites that show uh, all the ships in the world and where they are at any given moment, the East, East Coast is full of foreign ships sailing along the, the East Coast and along our coastline. And yet, and they go from U.S. port to U.S. port dropping off things that originated from abroad or picking up goods that are destined for foreign, uh, foreign markets. But what they cannot do is move between 
take goods between U.S. ports. So they're moving from U.S. port to U.S. port. It's basically like a conveyor belt that exists along our coast that we cannot use. It is illegal to use. Okay, so I read that, you know, the, you know, uh, same saying, you know, all, you know, ceteris paribus, as we economists say, all of the things being equal, it can cost uh, eight times as much to build a U.S. ship, up to eight times as much as it is to build a ship, say, in Japan or Korea. Is that a reasonable number? I think the the, the more accurate number, uh, that, that number came out in a Congressional Research Service report in 2017. Uh, since then, they put out another report that pegged it about five times. So about four times more for a tanker and five times more for a container ship, which is still you know just absolutely outrageously mind-bogglingly expensive. Right. It doesn't make any sense. And and so so here's the thing, you know, and and to all of us, you know, who, you know, who want U.S. jobs and who want a thriving U.S. economy, there's a doubt in the back of our brain. And that's something that people, you know, the, the you know, different forces pick at those little threads in our heads, because part of us doesn't mind really if, if you know, if if somebody's got, got more jobs here, we're willing to pay a little bit more. But five times is a big number. And I thought, well, is there any other allegory? So in reality here, what we really have is an issue of complacency, I think. And so I want to touch on this real, real quick, because there's lots of ways to ship cargo. And we've touched on a couple of them, right? You can, you can fly things around. You can put them on trains. You can haul them by trucks. And you can move them by boats. So let's just assume that that's the, that's the universe, right? And so you have this industry of boat builders, right? And you, you think, well, maybe, maybe we should protect you. Know, but is it working and is it necessary? And so what I did is I just did a little bit of research. And the first thing I said, well, what about airplane manufacturers? This is obviously, it's a big, expensive proposition. It's, it's you know, involves thousands of employees and parts from all over. They're complicated to make. And well, do, does the Jones Act apply to the planes? Well, the answer is no. Are we still competitive? Well, yes. There's we have Boeing, you know, for for the large commercial airlines, and for the smaller planes, we have companies like Gulfstream and General Dynamics, and we have Textron, and and, and you know, and and they make airplanes. I thought, okay, well, well, what about trains? All right. So trains should be another thing. If if we can't be competitive, right, uh, in making these big, heavy industrial things that move stuff for us, what about locomotives? Well, the U.S. is really competitive in the international locomotive market. We have the GE Transportation, which is now owned by a company called Wabtech. We have, you know, Brookville Equipment Corporation. We have Electromotive, which is owned by Caterpillar. And these people, these people sell their locomotives and train cars all over the world. And I thought, okay, well, let's look at trucks, right? What about trucks? You know, we've all, we've all been on the road and we see Everything. We'll see a Volvo truck. Well, you know, a big semi made by Volvo. Okay, and we see a big a semi made by Mercedes Benz. And okay, that makes a lot of sense. And but you know what? You're going to see just as many, if not more, trucks built by Peterbilt and trucks built by International uh, uh, Corp. You know, I think International Harvester used to be. Now it's Navistar. Uh, trucks built by Kenworth, which is owned by a company called Packard. And, and in fact, there's more semi-truck builders in the United States than any place else that I was able to find in my, in, my, in my limited research. But the point being is that none of these big, heavy, industrial, moving containers from one place to another types of transport vehicles is protected by the Jones Act. All of them over the last 100 years have been forced to adapt and innovate and modernize their manufacturing systems to stay competitive. And we are competitive. So in the back of my head, I'm saying, well, the, the reason we're not competitive with ships, we got to consider the possibility that it's because we're protecting them. Does that sound reasonable? I think that's completely reasonable. Uh, as you've shown, there are other U.S. companies active in the transportation sector that are internationally competitive, and they don't have U.S. build requirements for their respective industries. This is not a coincidence. Uh, in order to be competitive, you have to actually compete uh, Boeing and all these other companies, they compete internationally, and they uh, one benefit of that is that they get scale, uh, which means you know they build huge numbers. Uh, U.S. shipbuilders do not. They will build a handful of ships, and this has all kinds of implications. When you build at scale, uh, it means that um, you can spread your fixed costs across more units. Now, shipbuilding involves incredibly high uh, fixed costs, but when uh, uh, U.S. shipyards receive an order for a Jones Act ship. It'll be like a, a set of two ships, for example. They'll get an order of two. Or internationally, they'll build. They'll get an order for twenty ships. 
so they get to spread their fixed costs. Uh, they, it means they get to order parts and components in volume and get volume discounts. Uh, for example, engines. You're going to get you know, a very different price if you order two engines versus if you order 20. Um, it also means there's more learning by doing. You know, you build the first ship, you learn some lessons, and you can apply the second ship, and the second ship, you can apply the third ship, and so on, until you get really good at it. And that doesn't really happen in the United States. Um, another thing is there's reduced specialization as a result of the Jones Act. Uh, U.S. shipbuilders are more uh, jacks of trades and kind of masters of none. There's not one ship type that they're really good at. Whereas if you look abroad, different countries and different shipyards tend to specialize more in, in various uh, ships. For example, South Korea is usually the go-to country if you want to build an LNG carrier. Uh, and you know, uh, Finland is where you go if you want to build an icebreaker. And the Dutch, the Europeans are very good at dredging vessels and so on and so forth, where the United States, I mean, we're not really renowned for anything uh, on the commercial side, maybe river barges or something like that. So, you know, this is a direct result of, of the Jones Act and why we have those uh, insanely high costs that we just discussed. You know, and some people may say, well, this lack of U.S. shipbuilding is due to subsidies and lower wages that you find in Asia. But as far as Japan and South Korea, they actually have higher wage rates for shipbuilders. And with regard to subsidies, you know, something we need to keep in mind is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, U.S. It didn't suddenly become uncompetitive when Asia came along. We haven't been internationally competitive since the mid-1800s. So the next question is, you know, absent the Jones Act, what would U.S. shipbuilding look like? You know, what 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 would it look like if we didn't have this U.S. build requirement and we actually had to compete? Well, I think Europe is a good analog for what the United States could be. You know, this is a, these are advanced economies with high wages and high productivity. And they build, uh, they don't build um, container ships and tankers like the Asians, which are more commodity ships. They build uh, specialized ships, high value add ships like cruise ships, uh, Europe, Builds you know ninety something percent of all cruise ships in the world. They you know the dredgers, the icebreakers, specialized fishing vessels, offshore service vessels uh, for the you know offshore oil industry, uh, things like that. They design ships. They build components for ships. You know I mentioned earlier ship engines. One of the leader uh, leading ship engine manufacturers is Mann of Germany. Um, it's you know it's kind of like the iPhone. Uh, and at the United States we don't um, we don't assemble iPhones in this country. That's all done in China, but we designed the iPhone. Uh, some of the components, I think like, you know, the Gorilla Glass that goes in the iPhone, that's from the United States. The apps, Corning, the software yeah. that actually makes it work is all here in the United States. But if you take that iPhone model and apply it to shipbuilding, well, we assemble a handful of ships at extremely high prices, and we don't do that design work. These Jones Act ships, the designs for them all come from South Korea and come from, uh, come from Europe. Uh, the components, again, the engines, the thing that actually make the ship work, a lot of that is European and, and from other foreign countries. So uh, it, it's really difficult to argue that this law has done much of anything for the commercial shipping industry. Okay, so you know we're, we're you know our, I, I've been enjoying this conversation, but we're we, you know our time's going to be coming up quick. But you know when I when I when I run down the list, you know environmentalists should be in favor, I think, of getting rid of the Jones Act because. By having the Jones Act, we use more fuel in transportation. It, it's more hazardous to transport it over rail and truck, and it's definitely not environmentally friendly. So Jones Act, should that should be something that's kind of at least leans us in an environmental direction if we get rid of it. Um, consumers should like it because, you know, I've, seen, I've read several reports now, and the range is different, but that, that, any, that, that prices of domestic goods would, would drop somewhere between 2.7% and 4.3%, depending on who I, was, who I was reading. Everybody's got a different number, but everybody seems to agree that our prices would go down. You know, domestic producers of commodities and manufacturing goods, you know, they should like it because the transport costs, you know, in the domestic market should go down dramatically. Um, economic development folks like here in Puerto Rico, they should like it, you know, because that is a way to activate the local workforce, really. Who doesn't support this and why? The, yeah, it's funny. If you look at the Jones Act, you would think this is a, a clear failure as a policy. You know, as we discussed before, we have a number of ships has been trending downwards. Uh, we don't have enough sea lift when 
war or national emergencies come around. Uh, the shipbuilding is, is in a really pathetic state with only two or three ships built per year. So why do we keep the ship? It clearly fails a cost-benefit analysis. And I think it all comes down to, or, or largely comes down to, uh, dispersed costs and concentrated benefits. Uh, the average American does not know the Jones Act exists. Um, Whereas the people that benefit from the Jones Act, they absolutely are aware of this law. And, you know, this is funny since you're in Puerto Rico, you may appreciate this. I think a year or two ago, there was an uh, episode of Jeopardy. And one of the categories was Puerto Rico. And the answer to the $500 question was the Jones Act. None of the contestants knew the answer. And these are smart people. So we have entrenched interest groups like the, the Jones Act carriers that transport goods. Well, they love the Jones Act because it's less competition you know, shipbuilders, they love the Jones Act because this is a law that says you have to buy what they make. How great is that? And then, of course, people that crew these ships, you know, they don't want to go up against foreign competition. So they're all very active on Capitol Hill arguing in favor of maintaining this law. And you, there is and, and there are numerous uh, groups out there that uh, basically exist to help preserve this law, whereas there are zero uh, lobbying groups that exist to advocate for the repeal of the Jones Act. They just don't exist. Um, so it's, it's very asymmetric in that way. I think, you know, other, there are other factors uh, too. Uh, for example, there's just enormous status quo bias. As I, I mentioned, we've had these cabotage laws since literally the beginning of this country and people have grown up with them. They've never known a world that's any different. So it's harder for them to imagine the possibilities that could be unlocked uh, if we didn't have these laws, there's no before and after. Um, and change is scary. Um, and, and, and if you're a politician, you look at it and you say, well, if I support the Jones, I'm going to get campaign donations and votes from people that support the law. And all I have to do is nothing. All they're asking me to do is literally nothing. Just keep the status quo. Whereas if you, you know, try to pursue change, change is hard. You have to draft the legislation, get allies, and there's no one that's going to you know, reward you financially uh, for it. It's going, to be, it's going to be tough. So we have this bizarre uh, result, whereas some of the places in the United States that are most harmed by this law actually home to politicians that support it. They're in Puerto Rico. The resident commissioner, uh, Jennifer Gonzalez, she supports the Jones Act. If you look at Alaska, all three members of their um, of their congressional delegation support it. You look at Hawaii, there's only one ex exception there, which is Representative Ed Case. He opposes the Jones Act and he's proposed legislation to, to reform it. But he's said in interviews that it's one of the hardest stances he's ever had to take, which is absolutely bizarre when you stop and think about it. It should be the opposite, but that's not the world of politics. You know, Colin, um, I've enjoyed this conversation. And, uh, but, you know, we may need to revisit this again because there's a t ton of other topics that we need that, that we can cover on this. And it's 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 real. It's one of those crazy things. It's there's human behavior, there's economics and then there's legal Washington behavior. And that's nothing like what the rest of us have to live with. So I, I, I want to thank you for your time. It's been great. Is there anything, any uh, I tell you what, you know, um, I'm going to post, uh, you know, in the show notes for this particular episode. This is going to be kind of heavy on my show notes with lots of links and stuff like that. I'm going to link to your profile and that sort of stuff. But is, is there uh, some digits or a website or your Twitter handle you want to drop on folks? Absolutely. Uh, those that want to learn more about the, the Jones Act, I invite them to visit our dedicated Jones Act uh, web page at, at, at Cato. It's cato.org slash Jones Act. So pretty simple. And uh, for those that are active on Twitter, I can be found at at C.P. Gravos, that's C-P-G-R-A-B-O-W. And it's basically 100% Jones Act content. You'll, you'll love it. I guarantee it. Um, and, and Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Colin. And, and I'll, I'll put links to those two pages in the show notes as well. So we're there. Thanks, my friend. I'm, I'm, you know, let's let's talk again. And uh, you know, if you, yeah. if you need a, if you need some support on this, let me know. That you know, this type of economics content is is I just do it because it's in my brain and I have to get it out or my head explodes. Yeah, same. I mean, it's I'm telling you, the Jones Act. It's it seems so straightforward, and then you dig into it and you go down this rabbit hole, and it just gets crazier and crazier. And the more nonsensical, the more you dig into it. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. There you go. You know, there are a few folks like Colin trying to get the word out, and I know I'm going to do my part to help. 
But if you want more information, I'm putting a complete outline of the conversation and a ton of info links and you know in the show notes. So there's plenty of stuff there for you to poke at if you want to. But you know me. Stay tuned. I'll stay on top of this issue and keep you in the loop. And I think that we're going to be hearing a little bit more about this mysterious Jones Act in the next few years. You know, that's it for this time. As always, if I've given you a little bit of entertainment, fun, or information that you think is in any way valuable, all I ask is that you like, favorite, subscribe to this podcast, refer this podcast, share it with your friends, anybody else who's interested in pricing and economics and business, let them know what's going on. And if you want to reach out to Jeff, that's me, get a hold of me on Twitter at literally at jeffreyjhardy.com, at jeffreyjhardy.com, and you can find all the information about this podcast at jeffeffect.com as well. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>